last week we started talking about something called consecration. Consecration. And I wonder if any of the children might remember one of the, what the, what's the picture we use to describe consecration? Do you remember? Do you remember? No. I'll give you a clue. It involved a brush. Do you remember? Yeah? Yep. Yep. Exactly right. We were talking about a toothbrush. A toothbrush is consecrated to one use. It's consecrated for a a person. In particular, my toothbrush is consecrated for me. It's not allowed to be used by anybody else. It is expressly for, for, for my purposes. Now, and we talked about the fact that Samson was meant to be consecrated to the Lord. He was meant to serve the Lord. And there was a, there was a few things that he was meant to do that were part of that because he was called a Nazarite from his birth. He had to do things like not drink um, alcohol or even any great uh, products and he had to let his hair grow long, never cut the hair on his head. I know that some kids wish they could do that, but their parents keep cutting it for some reason. Uh, And uh, he had to stay away from dead bodies. So he was a Nazarite, and he was supposed to be dedicated to the Lord. The Lord raised him up so that he could deliver Israel from the oppression of the, the Philistines. But as we saw, Samson wasn't all that dedicated to at the very least, delivering the Israelites from the Philistines. And there was some question marks over whether or not he was really abiding by the, the being consecrated. For one, we talked about the fact that he was playing fast and loose with uh, the dead body of the lion. But Angus actually pointed out to me that in order for him to get the clothes that he stole to pay back his debt, because you remember he had a wager and he wagered 30 changes of clothes, the way he got those clothes was go th- kill 30 guys and take their clothes. Um, so he had to handle 30 d- dead bodies at least to get those clothes. So here is a guy who's playing fast and loose with uh, his... what He's meant to be consecrated, but he's not living up to what God has called him to. We remember that um, that the land of Israel was under the thumb of the Philistines for about 40 years. This was the longest oppression yet in the book of Judges. And so, in some sense, this time that we have uh, looking at Samson, Samson is both the high point and the low point. It's kind of simultaneously uh, in, the, in the story of the successive Judges. He's the last judge. The prophet Samuel also gets considered a judge, but in the context of the book of Judges, there's 12 overall, and Samson is the last one. And he is great in his strength. He has superhuman strength. Long before we had Superman and, and uh, Iron Man and other kind of the Hulk and these kinds of fantasy figures, we had a man called Samson who God gifted with superhuman strength when his spirit was upon him. But instead of being set apart as a great deliverer, he was self-serving and he had those questionable things going on around his Nazarite vow, as we talked about. But the thing that we also saw is that God uses Samson despite himself, despite his selfishness, 
uh, and the whole situation he gets into, God uses that to strike a blow against the Philistines. God wanted to overcome the Philistines. And even though Samson was the one who got himself into a bad situation, God used that bad situation for his purposes. We left off last week halfway through what we called episode two, because the story of Samson unfolds in four episodes around four women. The first episode is around his mother, because uh, there's this miraculous birth, because she can't have children, and then an angel comes and announces a child, and she has Samson. And then the other woman that we started to look at in the second episode is the wife that he saw and he would like wanted to marry. And we left off the story halfway through. So just to catch you up where we were, Samson saw a, a woman that was not a believer, was not part of Israel, did not was an outsider, a foreigner to their people, and he wanted to marry her. And he said to his parents, can you please organize the, this wedding? Because it would be organized between the parents. And his parents said, look, can't you marry somebody who's, a, who's an Israelite? Can't you marry a believer? And he said, no, no, I want to marry this woman. So they arranged it. Samson went down there to put on the wedding. And he as the groom, it was his job to put on the wedding. And they stayed there for the seven days of the feast. And Samson made a wager, had a little riddle with his 30 friends, renter friends. Uh, and if you can get the friends, if you can solve my riddle in the next few days, then uh, I will pay, I'll give each of you, 30 friends, a change of clothes. And a change of clothes is a valuable thing in that day and age. And he said, but conversely, if you can't guess the riddle, then you've each got to give me a change of clothes. So then he would have had 30 changes of clothes and been rather wealthy. So they threatened his wife, his new wife, to get, the, to get her to get the answer out of Samson. Samson gave in to the, to the pleadings of his wife and then she passed the message along. They tell him the answer. He's annoyed, very angry because he's been duped, he's been tricked, he's been deceived and now he's got to go and find 30 changes of clothes somewhere. And as I said before, he went and uh, killed a bunch of blokes and took them but then after this whole thing, Samson disappears in a huff. He, he delivers the clothes and basically goes back home quite angry. And then in the last part of last week's passage, we were told Samson's wife was given to his companion who'd been his best man. So he's just finished the wedding ceremony. They've just had at least a week of feasting. Um, this is like um, you get back from the honeymoon and um, he's, he's left because he's angry and then somebody else has taken his wife, has married his wife. This is not good. But the thing is that Samson doesn't know this because he's disappeared, he's left. He didn't know, he's expecting that his wife is there waiting for him. And so a little while later when he's in the mood, he decides, I'm going to go and visit my wife. He gets a nice present for her. So after some days at the time of the wheat harvest, Samson went down to visit his wife with a young goat. And he said, I'll go in to my wife in the chamber. But her father would not allow him to go in. And her father said, I really thought you utterly hated her. So I gave her to your companion. Is not her sis younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. So obviously this is not a good situation. Samson goes to visit his wife, discovers that his wife's been married to his best man. 
it wasn't really his friend, but because he was one of those renter friends, but nonetheless, this is not good. And so, Samson was legitimately married to her. The wedding feast and everything took place. It was all done and dusted. And so, this he's been betrayed by the father-in-law who has made these other arrangements, thinking that, thinking that it was off, thinking that Samson had kind of left her and would never come back. He tries to ameliorate the situation by saying, okay, well, let's arrange, uh, 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 let's arrange a marriage between yourself and my younger daughter. But as we know, Samson wasn't interested in anybody else. He wanted this particular lady who became his wife, at least for seven days. So Samson decides to act in vengeance. He went and caught 300 foxes, and I'll just pause there. The word in Hebrew for foxes and jackals is the same word. And so it, it seems likely, more likely, that there were 300 jackals. They also had long tails, and they were much more common in the area. Could have been literal foxes, as you think of like bush, bushy-tailed foxes, but um, possibly or probably jackals, because it's the same word. So Samson went and caught 300 foxes or jackals and took torches and he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails and when he'd set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines to set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain as well as the olive orchards. So this is the the classic kind of destructive prank gone, (laughs) more than a prank, but you see he, he... sets fire to these tails and then as they're running away trying to get away from the fire trying to escape um, trying to just I'm sure you can imagine the pandemonium and the chaos as there's these flaming uh, jackals or foxes running around everywhere setting fire to everything that they touch as they drag these torches through the grain and um, yeah and so then through the orchards so this is just causing pandemonium everything is burning you imagine trying to put out the fire over here and then there's another you know, pair running over there catching that thing on fire. It's, it's, it's chaos. And understandably, the Philistines are not very happy about it because essentially he's just decimated their economy. You know, they, their money's not in a bank account. Their wealth is in things like how much grain they've stored up for the next year or whether or not they've got trees to, to pick fruit off next year. And... Here is their orchards and their grain supplies and storage um, and, the, and, the, and the grain that hasn't even yet been harvested yet. It's all going up in smoke, literally. The Philistines are understandably not happy. So they ask, who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. This is, this is tragic, but ironic because the lady had wanted to escape being burned by fire because she was threatened. If you don't give us the answer to your husband's riddle, we'll burn you with fire. And now because of what has happened, because of this kind of the sequences of events that flowed out of her decision to try and escape being burned with fire, now she's actually ended up being burned and her family. Now, that's a tragedy but it shows the kind of the consequences, the domino effect of sin stacked upon sin, stacked upon sin. But then Samson is once again angry, presumably, because he responds to this outrage. It's like, well, I, 
he got it off his chest. He, he kind of vented his anger in destroying all of their grain and their crops and, and everything. But then when he finds out that they have killed uh, his father-in-law and his, let's say, ex-wife, then he goes and attacks them. And he says, it says he attacked them hip and thigh. If this is what you do, I swear I'll be avenged upon you. After that, I will quit. And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow. And he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock at Etam. So he attacks them once again. We're not quite sure what it particularly means, what, if it's an idiom or something. Attack them hip and thigh. But that's what it, that's what it says. So he is, he's gone to town. And then he's gone and fled and hid in a... He's gone camping in the wilderness to try and lay low and let things blow over. So, Samson is out camping in the wilderness. The Philistines are starting to get a little bit annoyed with Samson. He's, he's been killing people to take their clothes. He's been causing havoc with destroying their, their crops, their livelihoods. He's been uh, attacking people. It's just this, it's a big mess. So, they get together an army... And they go up to Judah to find Samson. They go looking for Samson in Judah. And I skipped ahead. Uh, it, it, they go looking for Samson in Judah. And the Judahites say, okay, we'll go and find Samson. So they leave that kind of Philistine army to go look for Samson. They find Samson camping out. And instead of saying to Samson, hey, God's used you to strike a great blow against the Philistines, let's get together and let's, let's throw off the oppression once and for all. No, they go, don't you know that the Philistines are in charge right now? We need to toe the line and we're going to take you back and hand you over. This is not the way that things should be going. They're betraying their own countrymen to try and smooth the way for them. They're not willing to stand up against the enemies of God. And so Samson hatches a plan. He says, okay, are you sh you're not going to attack me, right? And they said, no, no, we're just going to tie you up and hand you over. And so Samson says, all right, you can take me. So he lets himself be captured and they take him over to the Philistines. And then when he had his chance... And the Philistines came shouting to meet him. They're so excited, we've got him. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that had caught fire and his bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and he put out his hand and took it and with it he struck 1,000 men. So he absolutely um, destroyed their enemy. He's a one-man army. He's one man and takes on this massive army, this great feat of strength in the Spirit of the Lord. We're thinking, wow, this is great. This is a good move. Samson's fighting openly against the Philistines. And this doesn't seem to be because of um, him making a bad choice in this situation. It seems like, this, is this a change? Is this a turn in events? Well, the next verses even look even more positive, where he, after he's finished... <laughs> I don't know how um, much energy it would have taken for him as a super strong man, but killing a thousand men is hard work and he is quite thirsty at the end. And so he calls out to the Lord, Lord, can you please help me? I'm dying of thirst. Or I might fall into the hands of the Philistines or I might even die. So God split open the hollow place that is 
at Lehi, and water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned, and he revived. So God, he's calling out to God. This is great. With this deliverer, maybe this has been a change. He's, he's calling out to God. He's, he's looking to him in his hour of need. The name of it was called En Hakor. It is at Lehi to this day, and he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. So this is, this is looking good. This is a nice way to kind of bring to the end this story. You might say, well, hang on, there's a bit more story to go. And you're right. But everywhere else in Judges where we've read these words, he judged Israel in the days, you know, however many years, wherever else we've read that, that signaled the end of the story. Every time we read about how long somebody judged Israel, that was the end. But strangely enough, in this situation with Samson, this is only halfway through, structurally speaking. I mean, chapter-wise, we're more than halfway through. But structurally speaking, this little phrase signals the fact that we're halfway through. But there is an air of death because from here on out, we're going... We've already been told how long he judged, so we must be looking at his downfall, his demise. We notice in this part of the story of Samson, the devolving nature of sin, I'm calling it, the devolving nature of sin, the way that sin kind of breaks things down and compounds and makes things worse and worse. When, firstly, when you're like Samson and you're somewhere where you shouldn't be, if you're then having an appropriate, inappropriate relationship with somebody you shouldn't be, and then you're trying to defraud people, then you're being betrayed and tricked, and then there's the tit-for-tat of trying to get people back for the wrongs that they've done you. You see that this whole thing, this whole mess, it's like a snowball building up with time and time again of these things compounding on one another. In Proverbs, it says, The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. You see that? It is, in some sense, in sin, you're creating the cage that binds you. It devours you. And I think it's, I think it's nice to imagine your life like a garden, right? You've got this little plot that God has called you to take care of, your, your life, your responsibilities, what you've, what you've got going on, your inner life. And what you do with that plot matters. Are you going to sow righteousness and grow righteousness and bear the fruit of righteousness in this garden? Or are you going to let it overgrown with brambles, with with boxthorn, with uh, blackberry, with brambles and thorns and weeds ensnaring you and trapping you? It will wound you. It will destroy you. Now, God can use you despite yourself, as we've seen with Samson. God can can use people like Samson, even when he's acting in his self-interest. God can use people like Balaam, when he was acting in his self-interest. God can use people like Jacob, when he was deceiving and acting in his self-interest. God can use people like Judas, when he was acting in his self-interest. But I wonder, do you want that to be your story? Do you want that to be the legacy that you left behind? God used them despite themselves, as they were acting in their own self-interest. 
God can use you, but it will go so much better if you are working with God, again, as opposed to across God's purposes. If you're lukewarm, if you're kind of half in and half out, then the, then the call is to go all in with Jesus, to serve Him fully, and not just kind of keep Him on the side for when it's convenient. I'm thirsty, Lord, please give me a drink, and then act as if it doesn't matter the rest of the time. You call out to the Lord when you get into a tough spot, but do you turn aside from Him as soon as the crisis is converted, uh, is averted? I hope that you can call on Jesus to supply you with the living water so that you might never thirst again and that you can turn away from all of the other sources and you can stay wholly devoted to Him, to come to one place to find to quench your thirst, as opposed to trying to quench it with what the world offers you. In our third episode, we have the prostitute, the prostitute. And episode three is much shorter. We've had the mother, the wife, now we have the prostitute, a new woman on the scene. And as you can already tell, the good signs that we had seen at the end of the last episode with Samson defeating the Philistines outright with him, calling on the Lord, it all seems to have fallen over in a heap. Samson went to Gaza and there he saw a prostitute and he went into her. So Gaza being the, uh, an area of Phil Philistine area, Philistia, uh, uh, Gaza's on our mind a lot at the moment, isn't it, with all the news around the war in Gaza, but the cities there, like Ashkelon, which is presently in the modern state of Israel, Ashkelon, uh, Gaza, that, that whole region there along the coast was Philistia in this day and age, and they were enemies of God. So, Samson is down here in enemy territory and, and using a prostitute. He's fraternizing with the enemy in enemy territory. Let me ask you a question. Look, if you imagine that you were a Ukrainian, would you go and take your holidays in Russia? Right? Would you go and take your holidays in the country that is oppressing you? I wouldn't think so. But that's what that's essentially what Samson's doing here. And you can also you can see the euphemism that the, the scriptures use here. He goes into her, um, he, he probably going into her house, but um, you, he's not only going into her house. The, the scriptures tip us off to what is happening here. And so we're seeing this man of God, this one who should be consecrated to God, having a great weakness for his passions. He should be, he's the strongest man alive, but he is weak on this front. He is, gives in to his desires. He's more interested in the ladies than he is in serving the Lord. And so he has good desires. Don't you, let's, not, let's not pretend that it, these desires that God gives people to find intimacy with one another is a bad thing. But the, the problem here is that it is it's misdirected, it's misused. He is trying to fulfill his godly desires in an ungodly way. It's a sin, particularly prostitution is talked about as a sin because it's a corruption of God's design for sexual relations. 
And we know that some people will turn to this out of desperation in life, or maybe they're forced into this line of work in, in kind of in slavery situations. So there are victims here. We're not trying to victim blame, but we do need to understand that it's wrong. It's sinful. It's against God's design. And Samson should have known what he was doing was wrong. If he didn't know, then it, it points out the fact that the law wasn't being proclaimed faithfully in Israel. But even if he did know, then it shows that he was going against God's way. Anyway, Samson goes down there. He is misbehaving. And then God, sorry, not God, the people of the town hear that he's in town. And so they set a trap. They want to ambush him. They were told Samson has come here and they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night saying, let us wait till the light of the morning, then we'll kill him. So they've set a trap with these cities, these fortified cities. There's often just one gate or a couple gates in the particular, with this city, it seems to be one gate in or out. And so at nighttime, what you would do is you'd close the gate and then you could rest secure that you're not going to get attacked by some army moving through in the middle of the night. So they're thinking, he's trapped in there for the night, we can set our ambush and wait till the morning when they open the gate, and Samson's only got one way to go, so he's going to fall right into our hands. But their plan is subverted, because Samson decides to leave in the middle of the night, and not only that, he's going to take the gate with him. Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and, and the two posts and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. So to, to sh- kind of illustrate how far that is, it's as if he took the gates on his shoulders and walked to Turalgan. He's gone 60 k's with this gate on his back. He... But why? why? Why did he do this? Well, in part, it is, it's, it's opening up the city. It's taking away their defences. It's like a bank vault. If you take away the latch, the lock on the bank vault, the, the vault's useless, right? Because it's all well and good to have the really strong walls, but if you can't lock it up, it's no, no good. So, taking the gate, he's run off with it. And they can't just easily repair it because he's taken the bars as well. Like, he's taken everything. It's all gone. If he'd just taken it off and kind of thrown it on the ground, it would have been an inconvenience, but they would have had it back in place within a few days. No, he's taken it, and he has taken it so far away, it's it's basically never coming back. Samson subverted their plans. But we also wonder, hang on, what happened to the guys laying in wait? Well, either he did this somehow secretly, and he did it silently, how, we don't know. Maybe they're just poking fun at the Philistines by saying how dumb they were that Samson could pick up a whole gate and leave um, without them, without them noticing. Or perhaps he, they did wake up in the middle of the night and they had a fight and he took off with the gate afterwards. Don't know. But either way, these guys are shown to kind of, it's, it's, it's almost silly. It's laughable at how their attempts at subverting God's chosen man comes to nothing so this is the end of this episode really but once again we're left with the with with the situation where samson has done some mighty deeds it's wonderful great stuff that he's done against the philistines but 
He shouldn't have been there in the first place doing what he was doing. In our last episode, we have the episode for the seductress. The seductress. We come to this last episode in Samson's life and this last key woman in his life. So we've had the mother, the wife, the prostitute, and now we have the seductress. The infamous Delilah. What a net way to ruin a good name. It would, have been, it would have been a lovely name. I'm sure we'd have had plenty of people called Delilah if it wasn't associated with this particular character. Who is this Delilah? She's a woman of Sorek, we're told. We're not told that he's his wife. We're not told that she's a prostitute, though some suspect that maybe she was. If not, the woman mentioned in the previous episode, maybe some other um, prostitute. But we don't know. We would be unsurprised to find out if she was or if perhaps he was, um, had like a live-in boyfriend situation going on with Delilah. It seems to be that they were not married and they shouldn't have been together. We don't know if this lady was a Philistine, but as the opening part of the story is going to show to us, even if she wasn't a Philistine, kind of ethnically speaking, she had aligned herself with the Philistines. She aligned herself against God's people because the lords of the Philistine came up to her. They obviously found out that Samson and her were together. They come up to meet her and they said to her, seduce him and we'll see where, this great, where his great strength lies and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him and we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. So she's being bribed into giving him up, betraying him. This sounds familiar because something very similar has happened before. He's coming back around again. Now, there was five cities of the Philistines, five key cities of the Philistines. And so it's quite possible that there was these five lords that came up and each offered five five lots of 1,100. So we're talking potentially around 5,500 pieces of silver. And I don't know about you, but that seems like a lot of silver. This is a, this is a, you know, a life-changing amount of wealth. And Delilah gives in. She's willing to betray him for the money. So she goes to try to trick him, to beguile him. So that word there, seduce, seduce him, is trick him, beguile him, Uh, deceive him. We already know that Samson is susceptible to uh, seduction and trickery. So this has an ominous tone to it. But perhaps, perhaps maybe we could still hold out hope as you're reading the narrative. Perhaps maybe there's a chance that he won't fall into the same trap this time. As we read earlier, we know that that's not the case. We have this, this classic part, this classic part of the story with the fourfold, uh, what they call panels, these four kind of series of little uh, repetition in structure that tells the the story. And the thing about these four little repeated sections is the one at the end is where it all changes, where the structure changes and that signals to you kind of the climax of the, the, this section of the story. We've got... this repeating pattern of Delilah asking Samson, Samson responds to her with a lie, then she tries to trap him and it's 
subverted. Delilah uh, complains. Delilah asks him. Samson tells her something, which is a lie. And then she tries to trap him. And then he gets free. Delilah complains and asks him for the answer. He gives a lie. She tries to trap him. And he gets free. But then finally, in the fourth time around, he gives in and he tells her the answer. And she tries to trap him. And it's successful. He told her there was undried bowstrings. No, that was a lie. It was new ropes that would trap him. No, that was a lie. If you weave my hair into a loom, this is getting closer to the truth. But that was a lie. But then he finally gives in. And here we have something of a flashback to Sisera and Jael from earlier on in Judges. You remember Sisera was fleeing from the battle with Israel and he went into Jael's tent and laid down and went to sleep and Jael drove the tent peg through his head. But now the situation is reversed. Instead of the enemies of God being the ones who are being foiled in their plans and being attacked, now it's God's people, the people who should be delivering Israel are the ones who are being tricked and coming to their downfall. This is that stage in the story where we are, where it's difficult to tell the good guys and bad guys apart. But you might wonder, why did Samson give in? She's tried three times already. I suppose it highlights the deceitfulness of this sin and the situation that he's in, where it's that toxic, where he can't even tell anymore what's good and what's bad. But he might not have even realized the full import of what he was saying. Like, he was telling the truth that he was a Nazarite from his birth and he had never had his hair cut. But maybe he thought, seeing as I've played around with dead bodies before and my strength hasn't gone away, and possibly maybe he's drunk alcohol before and that he hasn't lost his strength before, so maybe he thinks he could have his hair shaved and he could get away with it, that he would still be have his strength. But obviously not. It was the last straw. When his hair was shaved, the Lord left him. But I think what the the, the situation comes down to is explained in verse 15 and 16, where the reason why he eventually gave in is because, because of Delilah, because of how she pressed him. How can you say, I love you, when your heart is not with me? You've mocked me these three times. And you've not told me where your great strength lies. And she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him. His soul was vexed to death. He wanted to die. It was that bad. She was pressing him and manipulating him and pressuring him. And she puts it back on him, making him seem like the bad guy when she was the one who was the bad guy. She tried to make him feel like he was in the wrong when she was in the wrong. Which, just as a little aside, just remember not to apologize for things that are not sins. If you've not done something wrong in your relationships, you don't need to apologize for things that you haven't done. All right? Truth should reign in your relationships. And that even means in the circumstances when somebody has not done something wrong, we don't just lie and pretend to be sorry for something to keep the peace. Let truth reign in your relationships. 
And we have here this classic stereotype of men's and women's relations. We talked a little bit about this last week. Men and women have particular sins that they're more likely to fall prey to. And we have those some two classic ones for men and women taking place here. The, the, the classic stereotype of the guy who can't keep it in his pants and the lady who manipulates to get her own advantage. And all of us need to avoid those traps. But notice here the power of women. Now, Delilah does not have anything like the strength of Samson, but she still has a great power in his life because of who she is to him. She doesn't have physical strength, but she wields great influence in this relationship. And so both is being, but she's misusing that influence. And so women, you wield great influence and power in your relationships between your, your, your parents and yourself, between your spouse and yourself, between um, your children and yourself. But you can misuse that power and influence just like Delilah does and you can, just like Samson, misuses his power. And so Samson was pushed to the end and it becomes unbearable for him so he gives up the answer and he was undone by nagging, so to speak. He gave in and it was his downfall. He's the, he's the, he's the lived example of the man of Proverbs who was... With Proverbs, you've got the father and mother calling their son to, to turn away from foolishness and turn towards wisdom, portrayed as turning away from the seductive, seductive adulteress and turn towards the noble wife. And here is Samson not doing that. He's, sedu he's seduced by the adulterous woman. And he foolishly, it becomes his downfall. Because initially, it seems to be okay. He gets away with the sin initially. It seems to be fine. He gets on with life. He's able to use his strength to overcome the challenges he faces, but eventually it becomes his undoing. He lowers his guard. And so while she had him asleep on her knees and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head and she began to torment him and his, um, and his strength left him. And he said, oh, the Philistines, sorry. And she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he woke from his sleep and said, I'll go out as at other times and shake myself free, but he did not know that the Lord had left him. So then the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And the he ground the mill at the prison. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. You can see his arrogance in thinking that he would always be able to rely on his strength to get by. He thought that his strength, his, his strong points, his, his advantages would be enough to get him by in life and whatever problem he faced. But his strength came from the Lord and in his arrogance, eventually the Lord took it away and his, it was his downfall. And there is a sense here that when the hair was taken away, he's no longer consecrated to the Lord and so the Lord left him. He's like a vessel and... The power, Lord's power did not fill that vessel when it was not holy, when it was not set apart. And so the Philistines decide to throw a party. Uh, they decide to uh, sacrifice their god Dagon because they reckon Dagon has handed Samson over to them. They're, they're like, yes, this is great. He's been the bane of their existence. And so they're going to party and celebrate, parade Samson around blind and, and bound for their own entertainment. But at this party, Samson hatches a plot. He gets them to uh, put him between the two pillars that hold up the building. 
It must have been a pretty decent-sized building because there's heaps, heaps of people on the roof. There's about 3,000 people there, people in the building, on the roof. And Samson, of course, famously presses, uh, well, stands between the pillars and then calls out to the Lord. This is the second time we've heard him call out to the Lord. He called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. So he is calling to the Lord, but what do we see again? It's self-serving. Self-serving revenge. I want to get revenge for what they did to me. Not, I want to deliver Israel from the hand of the Philistines. I want to serve you, Lord, with my life. I want to get my vengeance, is what he says. So God uses him despite his self, despite his mixed motives. God uses him as a, a holy instrument in these last moments. He grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested. He leaned his weight against them on his right hand and one on his left on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. And so the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed during his life. So in this last desperate act, Samson sacrifices himself to bring the building down and to get his revenge. And with his life spent in this last act, he's effectively doubled his kill count. You know, outside the realms of fantasy with your John Wicks and your James Bonds and your Fellowship of the Ring, it is com the idea of killing thousands of enemies as a warrior is, is, is it's, it's unachievable. Like, it's, it's crazy numbers. In reality, it is quite hard to kill that many people. And yet here is Samson killing thousand people with a donkey's jawbone. Um, he has other fights that we don't know how many people he killed. And here he kills 3,000. And so it could be up to 6,000 people that he killed across his life. Remember, not doing it out of bloodlust and glory or like because obviously we don't murder. But in this case, this is war. This is acts of war. This is taking out the enemy. So this is a huge number, but it is so tainted by Samson's motives. His sacrifice is tainted by this self-serving vengeance. And it's also kind of sad because he wouldn't have been in that situation if he hadn't been serving his own passions the whole time. But his brothers and his, all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel 20 years. So we close that section out with that refrain again, he judged Israel 20 years. He's buried by his brothers, so either that's his clansmen or his my parents ended up having more kids after Samson. But he's, he's judged Israel these 20 years. And we're left wondering, what's next for Israel? We're, we've come from Othniel, this, he, and, and, and people like him, Ehud, in many, in many respects. These guys, these, uh, these great judges, and we've descended to this. This is what it means to judge Israel, to self ser serve yourself all this time. Can it get worse? We will have to come back to Judges next time to find out. But one of the things that Samson does with his life is he signals to us our need for a greater saviour. And we look down the pages of scripture to a greater saviour who doesn't pursue selfish gain like Samson does. 
who doesn't live an adulterous lifestyle like Samson does, who doesn't play fast and loose with consecration and holiness, and in fact is, devo- is, is, is on fire for the Lord, and so much so that he goes and clears the temple because they're using it as a house of, uh, of, of market, of commerce, instead of a house to serve the Lord. Here is a man who didn't try and deceive those around him and trick them. Here's a man who didn't ever get off mission. And here is a man who did give up his life, lay down his life, but not out of a vendetta. He laid down his life to save God's people. This man is Jesus Christ, the one who came into the world as a deliverer to deliver God's people from an enemy. He wasn't there hanging around with the enemy. He wasn't there uh, fraternizing with the enemy in terms of uh, being their buddies. He was, he was there to save them and to save people and actually convert his enemies into his friends. We all were God's enemies until Jesus died to make it possible for us to be on God's side. God uses the worst people like Samson, but he can use you and I as well. God calls us to steer clear of places that you're not meant to be. Watch where you walk, so to speak. God calls us to be holy as He is holy. God gifts us with certain endowments, but we're not to rely on those endowments to try and skate through life. God calls us to live for Him, but when we fail, we should see our need for Him. Because we have all failed. We've all failed to live the way that God wants us to live. And so we should look to a judge who can deliver us. A deliverer who has delivered in time. Our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. The one who gave up his life as an act of love to destroy God's enemies and save his people. Let's thank God for that now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for... We thank you for the story of Samson not because we see in him somebody for us to mimic in every way, but because, Lord, we see you working. We see you working through your people using flawed vessels. We thank you, Lord, that you have used people like Samson. And we pray, Lord, that you might use people like us who are just as flawed. Please, Lord, send your Holy Spirit in our life so that we might do mighty deeds of faith for the sake of your kingdom. And we thank you, Lord, that you have delivered us once for all from our enemies, Satan, sin and death through the sacrifice that Jesus gave in laying down his own life. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.